Hello folks. In this lecture, we're going to turn our attention to French phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty. In the history of post-Kantian continental philosophy, we have charted at this point the moves from theories of the transcendent to theories of historicality, from Kant to Hegel to Nietzsche. Merleau-Ponty is the first representative thinker of the 20th century we're going to explore. He is an apt thinker to engage in in a course called Transcendence in the Body because he gives a very imaginative and innovative theory of historical embodiment. In this lecture, I would like, therefore, to do a couple of things. Firstly, I would like to provide some brief biographical background on Merleau-Ponty. Then, I would like to talk about Merleau-Ponty's primary philosophical method, existential phenomenology. Merleau-Ponty, in my view at least, is one of the most interesting innovators of Edmund Husserl's phenomenological method. Merleau-Ponty was, with the exception of perhaps Jean-Paul Sartre, the leading exponent of phenomenology in France. Then I will proceed to explain what Merleau-Ponty means by perception and conclude with Merleau-Ponty's theory of the body. Merleau-Ponty was born in Rochefort, France in 1908 and died relatively young at his desk in 1961. Merleau-Ponty was touched by the war, losing his father who was killed in action during World War I. He studied at École Normale Supérieure, one of France's premier universities, and completed his agregation in 1931. He then worked and taught at various lycées and served as an officer in the army during World War II. In 1945, he became a professor of philosophy at the University of Lyon, and later, in 1952, received the prestigious chair of philosophy at Collège de France. Merleau-Ponty was a contemporary and for a period a close friend of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Alongside Sartre, he was profoundly influenced by the work of Husserl, as well as being a committed left-wing thinker. Although Sartre and Merleau-Ponty later split because of Sartre's commitment to communism and the Communist Party, Merleau-Ponty, who, while remaining strongly left-wing throughout his life, was not that left-wing, becoming more and more critical of communism as time went on. Philosophically, Merleau-Ponty gives us a very distinct type of existentialism. I say distinct because Merleau-Ponty's focus on embodiment goes much further than a lot of the other existentialists into explaining the bodily and perceptual origin of our concrete experience. Merleau-Ponty emphasised a radical theory of perception, one that deviated from prevailing theories which held sway at the time, such as empiricism, rationalism and behaviourism. One other thing we should note about Merleau-Ponty's style of philosophy is that it is quite wide-ranging. While his theory of embodiment is the lodestar of his intellectual reflections, he also drew and wrote widely on topics beyond Husserlian phenomenology, such as psychology, anthropology, linguistics, art, and politics. If we are to look at the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty, we see at once the most banal but striking insight. The body has been forgotten, individually, socially, and historically. This is because of what Merleau-Ponty calls intellectualism, or rationalism, as well as empiricism which have become the dominant paradigms of intellectual life in the 20th century. Both for Merleau-Ponty are intellectual dead-ends. Rationalism with its focus on cognitive conscious structures and empiricism with its emphasis on incoming sense data are both hewn from a common deadly error. They separate consciousness from the world. 
Meaningful knowledge is therefore split into a subject-object distinction, forcing us into a false alternative where the only option for understanding the human is either as a detached ego or as a passive subject receiving impressionable data from the external world. The idea that there is a subject in my head and a world out there and never the twain shall meet is a divorce that is too costly for Merleau-Ponty. However, such a view remains deeply entrenched, not just in our intellectual life, but in our everyday self-understanding too. What, though, is phenomenology? Well, the word itself derives from the Greek term phenomenon, which basically means to appear, to manifest, or to show. So, phenomenology is the logic or the discourse of, of that which appears. Stated as such, this is somewhat vague, but if we recall some of the themes we have tackled in this series of lectures, we might be able to get a firmer grasp of this discourse on appearances. One prevailing theme which we have studied is the conceptual tension between the one and the many, eternity and time, presence and absence, and sameness and difference. That which we have called transcendence, going back to Plato, arises from a distinction between appearance and reality. Reality is that which is eternal and most real, and appearance is a secondary manifold of temporal and spatial relations. In some sense, then, phenomenology is a discourse on the latter. It is interested in explaining how things appear as they appear. There exist only relations of space and time, for example, inch, meter, second, longer than, shorter than, before, after, to the left, to the right, up and down. For the phenomenologist, that which is real is appearance itself. Reality, then, is variable spatial or temporal relations. Phenomenology is the method which makes manifest the what is it likeness to live in a world of finite, discrete things, times or spatial intervals. Or put in a more basic way, phenomenology attempts to show what it is like to be alive. In contradistinction to traditional philosophical approaches such as empiricism and rationalism, phenomenology seeks to know appearances as appearances. That is, rather than grasp an appearance as the manifestation of something else, as an exterior sign behind which there lies in part concealed the essence, phenomenology takes things as they appear and seeks only to know them as they appear. Beings are, for phenomenology, nothing other than the series of appearances that manifest them. We must ask then, what is it that these appearances appear to? The minimal answer is consciousness. When the phenomenologist talks about appearances, they are talking about the way an appearance shows or gives itself to us. Or to put it another way, to attend to appearances is to speak of an apprehension which I have of something and speak of it alone. The phenomenon gives itself in itself, without appeal to any causal or rational conditions. There is, then, in the phenomenological method, a methodological imposition of a restriction or a limitation. For Husserl, this is what he called the epoche, or suspension. We bracket out our natural assumptions about the external world, its objective structure, and especially their relation to consciousness. Let's try an example. Let's consider this cup right here in front of me right now. 
What can I conclude about my apprehension of it? First, it is a cup. I perceive its fullness. Also, I can grasp it as having a certain colour, being made of a certain material. In addition, I might apprehend it as being mass-produced or perhaps moulded by a potter. As a perceptual given, I can apprehend it as viewable. That is to say, it can be viewed from different perspectives. I also apprehend, rather automatically, that it exists, and that it is something that exists independently of me and my immediate apprehension of it. Even further, I might apprehend this cup having possible causal mechanisms which come to affect my apprehension and generate a representation of itself in my mind. However, this latter point must be delimited for the phenomenologist. Why? Well, because simply, I have no perception at all of the processes which constitute this latter apprehension. I am simply assuming them to be the case. The phenomenologist, rather than focusing on natural assumptions about the external world, prefers to restrict their analysis to that which is given in my apprehension of whatever matter which appears to me or which I perceive. Thus, rather than assuming anything, the task of thinking for the phenomenologist is to illuminate, to show, to make manifest the direct experience of how things appear to me or us. It's Merleau-Ponty is following a very basic Husserlian point. For Husserl, all consciousness is intentional. This means that all consciousness is consciousness of something. Consciousness is always directed towards something. It is immediately enmeshed in the world. The basic point is that we are unable to understand our conscious apprehension of an object in the world as a cognitive event occurring in my mind, separate from some kind of physical reality in the world. It is absurd, according to Husserl, to argue that an external object, which the subject perceives, is something that gets added to consciousness. Consciousness is not intentional by having something from the external world placed inside of it. Husserl's point is that consciousness and what it is conscious of are given together. Put basically, when we experience a cup, we do not experience this or that representation of the cup, but we experience that cup. Thus consciousness is not separated from the world, but completely at one with it. When I am conscious of an object, I perceive the thing itself, not my own perception of the object. This really is the guiding thought of Husserl's phenomenology. But how do these insights relate to Merleau-Ponty? Merleau-Ponty focuses his attention on the appearance of our embodiment. If we think about the body, our bodies, in an ordinary sense we tend to think of it in a mechanistic sense. The body is a machine and evokes a crude materialism. Feed the machine, as they say. Merleau-Ponty, as we will come to see, is not so much interested in understanding the body in a causally determined way, rather his version of phenomenology wants to understand the body as it is lived, as it appears as a human body, in the temporal and spatial relations it finds itself. The human body, along with the various traits and our activities attributed to it, is the place where the problem of transcendence becomes most acute body comes to be the site of a very different type of transcendence. For Merleau-Ponty, the body's transcendence is a type of imminence. Of course, to say this is a bit of a contradiction. 
at least if we are to understand transcendence and immanence in a conventional way, where that which is transcendence is not that which is immanent. A better way to think of the body as both transcendent and immanent is to think of the restrictions which the phenomenologist places on our apprehension. Here, the limitations of transcendence are bodily activity. Transcendence can only go so far. It cannot go all the way up to God or an eternal being, nor can it go all the way down to causally determined material constituents. Here, all philosophical thinking from Merleau-Ponty is embodied thinking. As I mentioned, in the philosophy of Merleau-Ponty, we see a most banal but oddly striking insight. The body is forgotten individually, socially and historically. Now, it is not at all the case that philosophers do not attend to the body. That is certainly the case. The body is reflected on in Leibniz, in Hegel, Nietzsche, Aristotle, and I would say somewhat against the grain perhaps in Plato. Few, though, have placed the body at the core of thinking. We are beings with bodies, and as observations go, that is quite banal. But of course, the obvious does not necessarily preclude profundity. Indeed, the banal world of everyday bodily experience is a rich repository of significance and meaning for Merleau-Ponty. Why wouldn't we want to talk about this thing called body which accompanies every single thought we have? This, though, is not to say that we can just dispense with Descartes. As I've always thought, Descartes' dualism is a lot more difficult to dispense with than we might expect. What is important in Descartes, then, for Merleau-Ponty, is a recognition. In Descartes' dualism, the experience of the body in some way lies beyond one's own understanding. Merleau-Ponty, though, wants to confront this supposed limitation head-on. Descartes still recognised the question of existence. By thinking in some way of the existence of the body as remaining obscure to thinking, where reflection itself is unable to penetrate the opacity of the body. Reflection, for Descartes, is limited, and not entirely self-present to itself where it concerns the body, which, of course, is why the body is in direct opposition to the cogito. What Descartes does not glimpse, according to Merleau-Ponty, is how bodily experience always occurs within a situation, a context, or always takes place within a bodily experience and situation, or as, in other words, existing. Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology, then, and specifically for our purposes, his notion of the body, tries to mediate between subjectivity and objectivity, our minds and world. Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology, this is the case as well with other iterations of phenomenology, is characterised by being anti-mechanistic and anti-reductive. His phenomenology remains profoundly reticent about disinterested knowledge. In essence, disinterested knowledge is in some way a form of dead knowledge. It is inert and without vitality. Objective knowledge is by definition aspecific. It is not dependent upon perception or apprehension, but holds for everyone because it is non-particular. Such disinterestedness is a form of abstraction and entails a huge cognitive dissonance within the human being as it promotes the idea that the human being is separate from the world. This dissonance is essentially the legacy of Descartes' splitting of the human being into two irreconcilable substances, mind and body. If we pursue this logic to its end, it means that our essential understanding of the world is one of two wholly alien and irreconcilable worlds. 
This means that the human being, and indeed the thinking human being, is always essentially estranged from the world. That such a division is entrenched has more baleful consequences, as it presupposes a separation that cannot be healed. The most perverse consequence of Cartesian dualism is the implantation of a torrid separation of mind and world. Merleau-Ponty speaks even in quite violent terms of this, and I quote, Our science and our philosophy are two faithful and unfaithful offshoots of Cartesianism, two monsters born of its dismemberment. In the opening pages of the introduction to Phenomenology of Perception, Merleau-Ponty stresses two of those implications, and these are fundamental to his way of proceeding in Phenomenology of Perception. The distinction between an immaterial mind and a material and mechanistic body, which receives its prime expression in Descartes, determines all modern thinking. This is to say, to think at all is either to subscribe to rationalist and empirical methods. This too is a type of limitation, a limitation which Merleau-Ponty is keen to overcome. Descartes' dualism determines the difference between objective and empirical investigation, scientific observation, which places consciousness in nature, accounting for the characteristics of consciousness in terms of natural laws and causal processes, insofar as they relate to a body, or in a rationalist account, where consciousness is depicted as holding a transcendental status, where consciousness itself is the primary source of meaning, or put in high degrees, where the being of other beings are constituted by consciousness. Merleau-Ponty looks at the rich world of perceptual experience in order to overcome what he perceives as the inadequacy of empiricism and rationalism. Both approaches are in effect two sides of the same kind, implicated in objectifying human experience. For Merleau-Ponty, scientific knowledge makes of consciousness nothing more than an object amongst others in nature. Consciousness here is only accountable in terms of mechanistic processes and causal descriptions. Rationalism and empiricism, therefore, contribute to a desiccation of experience by objectifying it, by turning it into a thing, making the body a mere thing amongst other things. Alternatively, Merleau-Ponty wants to propose a dynamic account of human experience, one where the body is a central function. Consciousness, before it is anything, is embodied for Merleau-Ponty. It is inherently relational and operates on a contextual basis. For Merleau-Ponty, this is because one of the most primordial experiences is that we take up space and depth. If this is the case, it entails that we are embodied beings. His claim is that modern science and Cartesian philosophy divest humans of the lived experience of their our body necessarily takes up space and depth and is therefore the origin of any understanding we can have of perception. We cannot think without thinking body first and foremost. Thus space and depth are of existential significance. Here we must understand that the human body is not a passive empirical body, calmly sorting impressions that come from the outside world. The body for Merleau-Ponty is active. It reaches out to the world of experience, habituating itself to the organisation of the spaces in which it is embedded. Put in the most basic terms, the body ties the human being to place. The fact that I cannot but take up space reveals that the body is a dareness. The fact that the subject takes up space and depth means that it cannot be an abstract entity either, with a free reign over the entire domain of time and space. It is embedded in the here and now. The very fact that we have a body reveals our embodied being in the world. The body, 
is therefore of the utmost importance for Merleau-Ponty. Consciousness cannot be revealed in any meaningful way without a true understanding of how the body operates. It is because I have a body that the I always is located in a specific context or situation. Having a body means that I am tied to a historical time and place, to events and to situations, to a perspective that is open to manifold arrangements and rearrangements of the world. We can thus see that Merleau-Ponty does retain an element of Kantian transcendental philosophy, although there is a significant difference where Kant wanted to articulate the transcendental conditions of subjectivity. Merleau-Ponty, in a way, places transcendental conditions in the body. In my view, the phenomenology of perception, Merleau-Ponty provides a transcendental argument for direct and immediate phenomenological experience. Merleau-Ponty is less interested in explaining the experience of what this or that specific body is like, that is, the content of a body, we might say, but that we are a body. And as we will later see, the body is intelligible as active temporal sets of relations. So, he is asking, in a typical phenomenological fashion, as to what conditions have to be in place for being a body to be intelligible. I think it is important to acknowledge that Merleau-Ponty is not entirely disavowing the traditions of empiricism and rationalism. In their own way, these shapes of consciousness have their place. However, it is vital to chart a middle way between what ultimately are two untenable options. With empiricism, or the realism of the psychologist and physiologist, the body is just one object amongst many in a world of objects, and attempts to explain its operations according to third-person objective and causal processes amounts to understanding the mind, the subject, as just a psyche, which is to explain the body as a product of one set of processes in the world occurring in another. Empirical theories of subjectivity permit a certain non-worldly element of consciousness to exist. On the other hand, with forms of idealism, such as Descartes or Kant, our empirical experiences of the world is always already ordered by transcendental conditions of possibility. As we saw in the very first lecture, the flux of temporal experience is bounded for Kant by the a priori forms of intuition and the categories of transcendental experience. Here, our bodily experience, as with any empirical experience, is transcendentally ideal. Neither solution is optimum for Merleau-Ponty because both do not explain the interaction of mind and world, let alone the interaction of mind and body. It becomes exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to imagine how the I is constituted either as a thing generated from the flow of passive experiences or by inhabiting a transcendental realm independent of experience. Merleau-Ponty's middle-way approach proposes a solution to this impasse. The solution is the organic thought of the body image. It is an awareness of the body occurring between the poles of sense and experience, presence and absence, thought and impression. This is more palatable for Merleau-Ponty because, well, to begin with, it is awareness of body that is primary and which does not take place in the mind. The upshot of this proposal is that we can avoid the inadequate alternative causal or mechanistic causes and focus our attention on the body from the perspective of its concrete existential thereness, or, to use Heidegger's again, its being in the world. Once we recognise that the body is lived prior to being explicitly thought or represented, 
then we can see that it is a form of immediate experience anterior to thetic consciousness. This is why Merleau-Ponty is a committed phenomenologist, since he wants to explain the immediacy of bodily perception, or the primacy of perception, rather than perception as mediated either by a transcendental ego or as a passive recipient of external data from the world. Let's try another example. Let's say opening a door. To open a door is not to know or to think that I am opening a door, nor is it to be explicitly aware of the causal processes at work when that door is being opened. For Merleau-Ponty, the spatiality of the body is not a spatiality of position. It is a spatiality of situation or activity. So it is not the case that I am actively cognizing points in neutral space while I am engaged in the activity. This would even be the case with more complex bodily postures. Let's say I could pull off a yoga eight-angle pose. It is quite likely I would have an awareness, even intense awareness, of my hands pressing on the ground to hold up my body within the pose. But it is unlikely that I would be actively cognizing all of my body. Attention really occupies only a small part of awareness for Merleau-Ponty. We do not have explicit awareness of our body because the body is fundamentally ambiguous. The rest of the yoga pose would be actively responding to a host of other conditions such as gravity, weather, built-up habits and muscle memory or internal bodily proprioception. To say the body is ambiguous is not necessarily a bad thing for Merleau-Ponty. He is referring to the essentially contingent and non-determined activity that our body engages as it goes about its business in the world. While we do not have explicit awareness of our body, it is an ambiguous agent opening us up, responding to and actively appreciating the world itself. To exist at all is to be embodied, it is to plunge oneself, luxuriate in the world oneself, to lose oneself in the projects and tensions and motor intentionalities that animates our immediate experience in an environment. It is just that we tend to forget this all the time. There is something tragic to this for Merleau-Ponty. We forget the richness and complexity of what it is like to be alive. We forget our primordial experience. Merleau-Ponty's phenomenology of perception, this as a celebratory tone, asking us to remember the primordial nature of perception. By way of conclusion, we began with some Husserlian observations suggesting that consciousness is intentional, that is to say that it is always directed towards something, or that consciousness is always implicitly worldly. Merleau-Ponty builds on this insight to explain how the body is the nexus of perceptual experience with the world. This means that consciousness is not simply an object or simply a psychic event, which represents or adapts to a physically real thing external to me. The perceptual object that is the body for Merleau-Ponty is intrinsically ecstatic. It is always already outside of itself, and not something that is added or injected into consciousness. In a way, Merleau-Ponty offers a solution to the mind-body problem which is dog philosophy after Descartes. Whether it is successful, I will leave to you to decide. But we should appreciate the originality of what he is trying to carry out. Historically, as well as philosophically, the human being often is cited as having a dual nature. And I don't necessarily mean Cartesian dualism. We could go back to Aristotle's metaphysics, where the human is zoon, logon, ekon, that is, the animal that speaks or the animal that discourses. We see traces of this duality in Hegel as well, where the human is its own sensuous expression. Merleau-Ponty, however, wants to jetten this thought of duality and wants to see the human being 
as an embodied being, as inseparable from its world. The question we need to answer next, though, is how that body actively shapes itself. The body is neither passive nor inert, but is a set of powers, habits, dispositions, constantly remoulding, adapting and reacting to the world in which we are enmeshed. This we will turn to next.